Welcome to the Sorry-Eyed Effect. I'm Steph. And I'm Brendan. And I'm Jen. On this podcast, we'll be chatting about all things Williams Syndrome. The ups and downs. And what it's like living with Williams Syndrome. We're excited to share our community with you. Thanks for being here. So, hey, Brandon, how you doing? I'm good, Joel. How are you, buddy? Good, good. I'm uh, just going to do the intro here because uh, Jen um, Jen had some stuff go- uh, come up, and so she uh, had to had to skip this uh, this little uh, pod meeting. And uh, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, but she was in, she had a great, uh, she was part of the, the first interview. Yeah, Maddie, Maddie Wu. Um, she she was awesome. Uh, her and I can relate on a lot of things because she rides horses and I rode horses for four years. And her dad was really cool and had a lot of really cool things to say. And yeah, this episode is going to be killer. Yeah, yeah. And then we um, we had uh, Cassandra and Kim, uh, a couple yeah. of teachers uh, from New York. Yeah. Who, um, we were put in touch with them uh, from Robin Pegg. Shout out to Robin Pegg. Friend of Thank the show. You. Friend of the show, Robin Pegg. And um, yeah. Yeah. And th- the two of them are they're They're a team. They team teach yeah. and they have an inclusive a fully inclusive mixed classroom of neurotypical kids as well as kids with, excuse me, with many different disabilities. Yeah. And um, in the last two years, they've had a, a, a student with Williams syndrome. And so it was, uh, it was great to, to, to talk to the two of them and, and listen to how they describe what having a student with Williams syndrome in the classroom, what, what that does, the challenges that it, it the challenges it, it brings up, but also the the absolute um you know, some of the wonderful, wonderful aspects. Yeah, it was such a positive vibe too, and such, you know, how they talked in such a positive light. I really Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so what do you say? We probably should just get to it then. We shall, shall we? And we shall indeed. Indeed. Let's go. Uh, hello, Maddie. How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. Well, for those who don't know who you are, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do? All right. My name is Maddie. I'm 20 20 years old and I've got Williams Syndrome. And I spend most of my day hanging outside with my horse, Mason, and riding horses. It's what I spend most of my time doing. Maddie, it is so fun to meet you. Um, I had... I guess, pleasure of reading an article about you. Um, and it's so fun whenever I find little nuggets about people with Williams syndrome doing things that they love in the world. I get so excited. So I was really excited to um, read the article and then obviously to meet you in person as a real treat. Um, so you're in Oregon, is that right? Yes, I am in Oregon. Okay, where are you at in Oregon? I'm in Hood River, which is uh, our east of Portland. Our east of Portland. Okay. Are you like in farm country? Yeah, it's the Columbia River Gorge. So there's a lot of fruit orchards. There's a lot of wineries, a lot of fruit that's grown here in the gorge. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you and you're with somebody today? Why don't you introduce for those people who can't see you who you're with? I'm with my dad, Aaron. My mom couldn't join us. She... 
ended up going on a whitewater rafting trip in Montana and left two days ago. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That's, That's a good awesome. reason to be here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Aaron. Um, Hi, Aaron. Yes, we we're we're river people too. So yeah, um, there are a lot of rivers here in Columbia Gorge. So we do a lot of rafting um, and fly fishing. And uh, Mom got a last minute chance to go on a trip yesterday. Packed up the van and drove to Montana. Oh, that's awesome, Maddie. Are you a White River rafter and a fisher woman as yes, well? I'm actually going fishing fly fishing with some friends this afternoon okay okay so you have you lived in Oregon all of your life yes I have well I was born in Colorado and then when did we move to Oregon um 2005 we moved to Oregon in 2005 okay okay so I'm from Colorado we were talking earlier we we live in Colorado um we're yeah we're more like northern Colorado Fort Collins area um yeah so that's a fun connection and Brendan is in Connecticut. So yep. you were born here in Colorado. How, how, I guess, how old were you when you were diagnosed with Williamson? Maddie was six weeks old okay. when um, she was going to have a heart valve stretch, you know, like a little angio. And yeah. um, the cardiologist who was going to do the procedure actually stopped and said, I see a couple things. We should reevaluate mm-hmm. uh, Maddie's condition. I and so he saw the SVAS. So he said, when these two things happen together, there's a syndrome that could be involved. We should stop what we're doing, and that's how she got diagnosed so early on. Okay, and you were here in Colorado when that happened. We were living in Telluride. Okay. Um, Maddie and her brother Ethan were both born in Grand. We were living in Telluride. So yes, we were living there. And so subsequently, we ended up driving to Denver Children's about six to 12 weeks from Telluride, which is about seven hours. And then after a couple of years, um, we decided that we should be closer to a children. And so we ended up looking at all the children's hospitals, like the top five in the country, and deciding to go to Portland. Okay. And that's how you ended up out there. Okay. So how old were you when you moved to Oregon, did you say? I was born in 2003 and we moved in 2005. So I was around two and a half. About 18 months. So you lived like predominantly, like from the time you can remember, you've grown up in Oregon. I don't remember much of when I was born and living in Colorado. Right, right. So how old were you when you started riding horses? Like, did you just, were you a baby getting on a horse? I I was like three and a half, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Three and a half. And I started out at a therapeutic riding center out in like the Beaverton area. Mm-hmm. And then um, just kind of pretty much I graduated from the therapeutic riding program. So we moved to, we've been, we moved a couple of different barns. Okay. I can't remember if it was 13 or 14. I was surprised on my birthday with my very own horse. And does that make sense? No, that was a different pony named Zoe. So tell us about how you got from like being a baby on a horse to where you are now. Well, let's see. I've been, let's see. So we started around when I was three. So it's over 17 years of being around horses. So when I first started out, it was more of like the therapeutic. The horses settled up. I had sidewalkers with me. The walk, trot, canter, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, started learning how to walk and trot. And then first time I learned how to canter, they had me on this little pony named Bear. No lunch line. I asked for the canter, 
and bear bolted. I've been on a horse bolted before too. It's pretty scary. (laughs) So I'm just holding on while he's zooming around the arena. Yeah, hold on for dear life. (laughs) Yeah. Mom and dad. Yep. So that's, and then after that, I started jumping. And then from there, and then I did pony, I started doing pony club around the time I got Zoe. And then I did pony club till I was like, 18 i think and pony club's a super structured writing program definitely would just look into it kind of for references they got the horse side of things which is all about the care of the horse but they also got like management safety like safety is the number one thing with pony club and it's really important when you're handling animals that are twice their size and twice and like three times your weight you need to you need to know your stuff (laughs) yeah you need to know your stuff but um, I grew up doing. I did pony club, and then I kind of just decided that um, this wasn't the right fit, and so we started searching for another program. And my mom found a Facebook ad on the Virtuous Global Games, right. and that's how this took off. She was always been this person who, um, she'd say, "I can go out and catch butterflies." But she wouldn't bring a net. She would go out there and she'd come back and butterflies would be covered all over her. And she'd come back to the house and be like, look what I've I got the butterflies. And they're just on her. Yeah. And so ladybugs do that. Bees do that. And they just kind of gravitate to her. So she definitely has this connection. Yeah. I recently did, went to the um, gar- local garden store and came home with a couple packages of ladybugs. And they just like crawling on her. Yeah. And they were just crawling I was trying to get them into some plants and trees that we have, and they a lot of them were just crawling on me or flying off, but ending up landing in my hair. And then I'd have ladybugs crawling around in my hair, trying to untangle them. Meanwhile, I had butterf- ladybugs just all over me. So, oh my God. We, you know, we definitely always pursued the horse, um, the equine thing with Maddie, and it's it's been her love. Um, you know, we, we had horses, but we boarded them somewhere. And one of the, one of the big elements of moving from Portland and back out to the country was to have our horses at our property. So, and I've always wanted that since I was in Portland, I've always wanted to have my own horse and a property where I got everything here at the house. So I don't have to drive anywhere to see them. I can just do it, get up, go out, feed, and just so they are hang out. Um, yeah. We found a property in Hood River that had a little barn, and it actually has an arena. Um, and so everything's here at home, and we've pretty much structured our house life so that um, everything that Maddie really needs here. But we are um, we're close to downtown. Um, she can ride her bike or take the um, there's a local bus, um, yeah. but only about two miles from downtown. Um, so it's kind of a good happy medium. So you graduated high school at the time that you're having this heart surgery and you qualified for this um, event all at the same time. So yeah, last year, Maddie graduated in June. Um, yeah. In March earlier that year, she... Uh, First week of March, I found out I needed heart surgery. Yeah. We went and saw a Williams syndrome team at Stanford and got that got that news. The surgery was scheduled for August. They we went down we went on this huge road trip a week before. We ended up checking it, getting all the pre-op stuff done, only to find out that we got a call that night saying that they don't have enough beds in the ICU for me. 
Oh. Yeah, they couldn't do the surgery. So they couldn't do the surgery. So we ended up driving home. Back home, yep. They covered a bunch of the bills, though. Um, so during last summer, after she graduated, um, while we were preparing for this upcoming surgery, Karen, mom, uh, found the uh, Virtus Global Games. The organization here in the States. Okay, yes. That... It's based in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, so that's based in Bend, their headquarters. And they were looking for writers participating. Okay. So we found that, got My, the information, yeah. and you do a virtual qualifying. So Maddie trained to do that. By the end of August, September, she submitted her video. Meanwhile, we had, we had also gone on a rafting trip, and I ended up getting waking up with cold. And yeah. so I while submitting, I was not writing my best during these tests. We had to restart multiple times because i was she was very sick i was i get when i get a cold i get very very sick i'm sure you guys get it the deep i get the deep cough super deep wet cough that goes on for months i'm coughing so much that i have to take codeine with cough syrup at night yeah i i know when it's bad when i start Sounding like Alf in the Like, like very feminine. And I talk like way up here and it's so bad. <laughs> That's how I get. And then, yeah. but for me, it's mostly just nonstop coughing, nonstop coughing. Um, my nose gets so chapped and I bowed my nose so much that it gets all my whole, my nose is all stabbed up because it's so chapped. <sighs> It's absolutely terrible. And um, yeah, so if I don't take a super strong cough medicine like codeine or cough syrup, I go to bed, but I'm up coughing all night until 5 a.m. And then my mom usually comes in and asks to help me because I'm coughing so bad. You're keeping her awake. My coughing even kicks my cats out of my room. Like my cats will will get up and leave the room if they're sleeping with me because I'm keeping the cats up with the coughing so you're sick and you had to like send in this video i'm sick and there was a deadline to set in this videos so like i'm trying to recover from this cough my horse isn't at the house he's at my friend's house like it was actually a pretty amazing situation that maddie qualified we had we had taken the horses to another property because um, so he was traveling to go qualifying off on really short notice because um, we just discovered it but there was a deadline and meanwhile was sickly i was she was having issues with leg circulation so um the valve issue was that 30 to 40 percent of the blood was not getting through the valve regurgitating backwards and it was uh, my oxygenated blood was leaking into my lungs yeah. so she wasn't getting really good circulation through her body she did the test she sent it in and then she actually qualified and we found out that day after she came out of surgery that she oh, how long was that from the time you submitted the October, video november well so she got scheduled for october and then that one got canceled because she was sick i was still sick from that cough that i had gotten while trying to qualify for the vo- yeah. virtuous games then finally she had surgery the first week okay so and that's, that's so when you exciting so you qualified in november and then yeah. how did you have to like get ready before you left for France? Um, I couldn't start riding until early February. Because of your because they put me on a blood thinner and I'm not allowed to do any exercise because if I get 
any sort of bad cut, blood thinner, I could would easily just bleed out because of the yeah. blood so, thinner. So how do you deal with like all the emotions and stuff when it comes to like all the challenges you've had, all the setbacks with it was really difficult, but um, I had the, my dog Bentley and the cats here at the house, so they would come and snuggle with me. Um, I'd go up to the barn to my friend's place twice a week, two, three times a week, and I would just take my horse out and on walk. And my friend was super kind. She was riding him do while I was recovering, so he was getting work. It wasn't like he was getting like. He wasn't getting like six months off. My friend was working him and making sure he was as fit as he could be. And he was get he was used as a lesson horse. So he was getting used quite a bit. And I just let her take the right care of him and keep him healthy. And I check in with her weekly on how he was doing. And um while I was in the hospital recovering, I was getting pictures from my best friend because her horse is also at my other friend's place so I was getting pictures from both of them my friend's mom who does a lot of the feeding while my friend's at school so it was just there was a lot of people helping out so it sounds like the animal yeah the doctor do a little force is very strong with us animals know what is up but they always know they know I mean Mason if I'm not really feeling that great I mean, I'm sure you've experienced going out to the barn if you've had a bad day. You know, I mean, it's it's been a long time since I've ridden, but yeah, the horses, the they horses, know they know they know what's up. Yeah, like, they're very intuitive. Yeah, there's no denying that they know what we have dogs. And yeah. one of the things that you had said before, um, both of you, you were talking about how animals are very attracted to you and I think um you do have that kind of nature right where it's very uh like nature in terms of like your spirit right like that they're like in tune to you and you're in tune to them if that makes sense yeah and so while I was recovering I had to be I could go up and see them but there was a lot of limit and what I could do because the when they do the open heart surgery I got, they basically saw your sternum in half, straight down the middle. So the only thing that was holding my sternum together were these metal wires that they use as zip ties to basically tie it together. Tie it together and make sure that it feels right and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean. So when was the first time you got back on your horse after surgery? Was it February? No, I pushed it a bit. She cheated a little bit. I cheated a little bit. Um, January, I was walking around on him. I think I must have gotten, I think the first time I sat on him and my friend was so kind. She'd ride him and then I'd get on and she she would just hand walk him with me on him. So for safety, but I mean, I think I got on him like, I don't know, maybe once or twice around New Year's and I was walking around him, around on him by like mid January, I guess, for like 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. And when did you go? So when then did you go to France? I went to France in June. In June. June. So February, February to March, March to April, April to May, May to June. So I only had four months to prepare for this. Yeah. One of the things that I love about having Williams syndrome is that it makes me different. 
from everyone else I know because none of my other friends have Williams syndrome. You're the only one. I'm the only one. So for me, it, I feel like it's good because my friends learn can learn who I am because of what I have. And the and another thing I really like about it is that when I usually go to shows, I compete about compete against neurotypicals. So that makes showing horses for me a lot different and a lot more unique because to make you feel good. Yeah, it does. Make makes you feel good competing against people who don't have it's pretty like awesome. Horse, yeah, in the horse competing world, um, there isn't like here's an event for someone with an intellectual disability. They just, you just all compete together. Um, and that's yeah. great. And do you feel like it's inclusive? Like, does it? Yeah, I do feel like it's inclusive. Um, And the question is the only sport where males and females compete equally as one. Cool. Yeah, there's no male categories or female. Yeah, and that's how it is in the Olympics too. I, I, I'm a special Olympic. Like athlete, so I, I compete in like swimming and golf, and so I I totally I, I understand that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. yeah. We don't have a developed special Olympic equestrian program because you have to be in a therapeutic riding center, mm-hmm. and there's just it's just not as developed on the West Coast as it is on the East Coast. What are some challenges with your disability, or do you feel like there is any? I feel like um. I feel like um, just like making sure people understand what I need mm-hmm. in situations and um, like how hard it is for people to understand my limits. Right. Because um, going back to the heart thing, um, there was a couple classes that I took that the teacher just didn't understand the limit, right. my limit. That was really difficult. It was, Specific teacher was, is just difficult to work with in general, but it was really, really difficult for me and not getting things adjusted to what I could do. Sure, I bet. I mean, even mom had an, a difficult enough time dealing, just trying to make them understand what I need. And you can't be there all the time. There's not always an advocate, somebody who yeah. clearly. Yeah, I mean, and my mom was trying so hard to explain it clearly. Um, some people don't get it. They just yeah. don't get it, and that's frustrating. Like, when you really want to take a class, the teacher just doesn't get it. Or he acknowledges, but just ignores ignores what you need completely. I mean, I think that's it. I feel like I've shared my story. And it's a great I'm story. sure people will have a lot of questions. And we want more people to know about you and the great yeah. things you're doing. Um, so, you're, you're shattering a lot of of norms and you're breaking a lot of barriers and you're on yeah. community girlfriend you are doing a great job you and your parents yes i wish mom was here for this as well i'm glad she's rafting because she, she, needs, she needs she needs a break <laughs> thank you guys for coming on today that's so amazing thank you so much for having thank me thank you guys yeah it was great it was awesome All right, so uh, Jen um, had to uh, step away. She, you know, she's a busy lady. She's very important. She's a VIP. So uh, so for this part of the show, uh, dear listener, you're stuck with um, you're stuck with me. But don't worry, Brendan is here. Brendan's here to keep me in line. Yes, um, I am. 
<laughs> we have we have two wonderful guests. Uh, this goes back to when we had Robin Pegg on to uh, talk about education and um, teaching uh, the, the benefits of, of classroom inclusion. And she helped put us in touch with Cassandra and Kim. And um, we are so happy to have the two of you here today um, where we can talk, we can continue this discussion and talk more about classroom inclusion and um, and the and your experience. So, uh, Cassandra, first, I will um, I will ask you, could you just uh, give a quick introduction of yourself? I'm Cassandra Davide. I'm an elementary school special education teacher. Um, I've had the wonderful pleasure of working with a student with Williams syndrome for the past two years. Uh, sad to say he's moving on for me, but, um, you know, I've learned so much in these past two years. Overall, I've been an educator for about 10 years. Wonderful. Uh, and Kim. Hello, I'm Kim Shire, and I'm a general education teacher that um, was working in the ICT classroom with Cassandra and um, also had the pleasure of working with a student with Williams syndrome for the last two years. Um, working along with um, Cassandra in the same classroom. So, so you, the two of you are, are a team, classroom yes. team. That's yes, we fantastic. are the dream team. Oh, fantastic. that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Love that. Love that. Uh, could the two of you sort of talk a little bit about how you uh, how you approach team teaching and how you approach um, your, you know, your classroom curriculum and how you both go about um a, a, a setting up a day with with a variety of students in your classroom. Yeah, so we'll start off with the makeup of our class. It was basically the same for two years. It was um, 11 students with IEPs and then 11 students without. So, um, and each of us have our strengths that we like to work on. So Kim is a curriculum master. Um, I'm the differentiation and technology master, but it also helps because Kim has a special ed uh, license as well. And she worked um, previous to being, um, she could tell you more about her career path, but previous to teaching in a gen ed setting, again, she was a special ed um, consultant teacher resource room. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of a special spark that happens when there's two special ed teachers, but we also have the gen ed side of it. So it's, it's been really special, you know, Kim will come in usually a uh, 10 o'clock text or 4 a.m. text of, <laughs> I have this great idea. And I'm like, okay, Kim, let's go. And uh, and then we kind of work through it and figure out how to differentiate it, put it on a computer for the assistive tech friends that need it in the classroom, um, those type of things. But really we, it's- you know. you know, we say it's like a marriage, right? Like we throw an idea out there and then we just sort of work through it together, you know, with all our expertise in different areas, sort of all of it coming together to make this, you know, these amazing units of study, you know, to meet the needs of all the students in our classroom. So, I mean, we're having different strengths and we both have different weaknesses, but we seem to um, gel together like a marriage and, you know, so that we can develop um, the strengths and weaknesses of our students. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we were, we were um, always planning with the multiple different students in our classroom. So it ranged from a student with Williams syndrome, which both of us have never worked before, to students with no academic concerns and just behavior concerns. Mm. So it really was the gamut, and we had to plan for every single one of those students. Um, and that's what we did. We just made magic. And we had some really great units of study 
um, that just kind of just kind of were amazing. I mean, for elementary school folks out there, we did a who would win study last year where we they put two animals against each other and uh, they decide who wins based on the strengths and weaknesses of the kid of the animals. Yeah. And then we also did in second grade, we did a bird study where, you know, we we studied one type of bird in our region and man, oh man, those kids loved it, especially our little boy with uh, Williams syndrome. He could talk about woodpeckers for the rest of his life if we gave him the opportunity. But then we introduced the who would win study and now his big thing is snakes and iguanas. So it's like, you know, we, we yeah. took these curriculum pieces that kind of came from Kim's curriculum brain and tailored them to our students. And I think the magic right between two teachers is we were we were good at tag teaming, you know, we could say to each other, I, I can't figure this out with so and so it's not working. Can you try and then we would sort of tag you're it. It's not working for me. You try something else. And I think that was the magic in our classroom was that flexibility and that give and take where we could say to each other, I can't figure this out right now. And we would just switch it off and change the groups we were constantly changing our small groups and our partnerships or who's working with who and it was just a very flexible classroom when dealing with just this varied a population it probably is nice to know you're not going in alone that you have that yeah. you have somebody there that is going to be with you to uh to, to to just good in the bad yeah and even if it's just across across the room where the two of you can look at each other and go Oh. <laughs> oh, we did that a lot this year. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's there were a lot of exchange looks over over students with the students. Like it was just a crazy year. But you know, it helps when you know our our personalities mesh together as teachers, but also as humans. That's another really helpful thing. We're both yeah. flexible people you know, ready to just do the work that we have to do, even if it's in, it, you know, overlaps into our personal lives. You know, Kim loves to call me in July and tell me an idea for September. I'm like, I just got to the pool. Call you later. Like, call me in September. So. <laughs> but I think that's the amazing thing about is we push each other and then we're also there for each other. You know, teaching's hard. And, and you know, teaching, you know, kids with different classifications and different IEPs, it's hard work. And when you have somebody else to support each, when you can support each other, it's it's pretty magical for the kids, right? And for us, but for the kids, where we see this incredible progress over time. And, and we always keep our door open, which has led us to great discoveries, like the great Robin Pegg. Um, we have used, I would say, 80,000% of her ideas and some. Um, so the collaboration where she can come in and observe for a day, even with kids that without Williams syndrome, she's like, this sounds like it was something that would work. And then we had the collaboration of the parents. Um, you know, we're big on parent involvement, parent engagement. So it was it was just altogether a really great, great mm -hmm. situation for the student. In your classroom, is it just the two of you or do you have uh, sometimes some some paras as well in there? Yeah, um, we started the year. I think we started the year with two paras. Yeah, that's how we ended too. We kind of transitioned the para from a three to one to a one to one with for the student with Williams syndrome. We just mm -hmm. decided it was best based on his progress. How are the discussions with parents when you're dealing with uh, the parents of uh, the kids with the disabilities as well as the neurotypical and physically typical kids? 
Yeah. And I don't really know how, because I don't think I'm able to reflect on the year we had yet, but I'm not really sure how we're able to, but something between our partnership, the powers we worked with, we were able to kind of, we had a tough behavior class this year and we were able to still get all our work done. And parents said how well we did. Like they, the kids would come home neurotypical and not, and would say, Hey, guess what? Someone did this, this, and this today. And the teachers would be like, uh, the parents would be like, we didn't even know that was going on based on the products that were being sent home. Like it was never a complaint. It was always a compliment. I don't really know. Kim, you want to talk more about like, how did we manage that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think we were always very willing to communicate at any moment, right? So at any time, whether it was a, a, a student with an IP or, or a student without, we would communicate very openly with parents and very often with parents, whether it was about the curriculum we were doing and why, and or it was about, you know, a complaint or a problem um, a parent was having. So we were always, you know, very open to face a problem or a, a feeling a parent had sort of upfront. And as soon as we would, um, ask the parent to come in immediately or we would get on the phone with them immediately. So we sort of, you know, were very open with our families and we also invited them in often. They were in our classroom so they could see, right? There, we, we were proud of our classroom and how it ran um, and the routines that we had in place and the work that we were doing. And many, many parents who were kind of on the fence about you know, a classroom like ours in the beginning changed because they were like, this is a beautiful thing, you know, and they realized, you know, what went into um, our classroom and how much the kids learned um, from being in a co-teach classroom like we had. So, you know, I think it's having open communication and then letting them see it for what it is, you know, and, and seeing the work that we do. And really, we invited our parents in multiple times over the course of the year. And I'm a very big believer in that because I'm proud of what we do. And um, I think and when you have some negativity and then they see what's happening in the classroom, then they really, you can turn that negativity around pretty quickly. Um, and we were also very open to suggestions. Like um, some teachers would you know, wouldn't get advice from parents, but we'd be open to it. Like our student with Williams syndrome, we researched, we did things, but we didn't know about the Williams Association, the Williams syndrome association until the parent brought it to us. So look at this, look at all these resources, look at this Robin Peg lady. And we were like, sure, give it to us. Like we need, we wanted to see what was best for our student. And we just took it in and we didn't, we weren't like, oh no, we know better. We're teachers. No, we were like, you that's an amazing resource thank you so it's having an open mind right it's you know if, if someone brings a resource to us we would we never see just because it's coming from a parent doesn't mean that i we can't use it we're we're yeah. learning along with the kids so it, we were open to all suggestions and resources that would work you know for us and you know robin peg was an incredible resource for us and we were we i mean i would love to have more of her right she was she was not just useful for our student with Williams syndrome she had good suggestions just in general for collaborative co-teach yeah she's awesome um so what were some of the unique challenges you guys faced as teachers having someone with Williams syndrome in your classroom 
Yeah, it was. Well, there was, uh, you know, as common with students with Williams syndrome, a big personality. So everybody, there was no need for kind of social, so any type of social work. He he was like the mayor. Everybody kind of knows him in the classroom. Um, we are social butterflies. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> this, this guy definitely was. You know, he he'd ask you questions if you had uh, African masks at home to the the assistive tech guy that's only met him once. So like he was very social. Yeah. Um, so we didn't need to make him feel part of the classroom. He was already there. The the challenges I would say were keeping up with the curriculum because yeah. curriculum doesn't wait for anybody. <laughs> um, nope. They don't take into a, the curriculum, the standards, you know, we're in New York state. We had state tests this, this year. Uh. Um, so we we had to find ways to make his learning just as meaningful while, you know, loosely sticking to the curriculum. Um, we found, you know, this is a segue into the um, para conversation is that we started him with a three to one para, which right. was sufficient for second grade. Mm -hmm. um, moving into third grade, though, as the curriculum really picks up pace um, and the state test is there and there's more reading, writing, math. We just felt that we didn't want him getting left behind because he couldn't keep up with the curriculum. So, you know, we had this conversation many times with Robin Pegg, with the parents that, you know, sometimes you, you with the para of any student, there's this learned helplessness. And we wanted to avoid that with, with our friend, but we wanted him to be successful academically. So, you know, we made it clear with our para, luckily we had this, this gift para who was also a former teacher and just wanted to fill her days who made a connection with our friend really quickly and was able to keep that boundary of no you do it yourself but let me show you how yeah. um so we we really were able to scaffold the curriculum give him that repeated practice while still trying to build his independence that's awesome um, yeah robin robin called them soft skills, soft skills for the classroom. And this year we really bolstered them. That's like following routines by himself, um, yep. using assistive tech appropriately. So um, there were definitely challenges, but I would say the challenges didn't come from the student. It came from the curriculum and the pace of curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can understand that. And I think we worked, we were working really hard this year to help um, our student with Williams syndrome to become independent because third graders become independent, more independent as the year progresses. So we were trying to find, you know, really some good successful ways to help bolster his independence so that he can develop the routines in our classroom like the other third graders did. I think this team approach that you're talking about, right? Like when, you know, we would see a challenge in the classroom, it wouldn't just be the two of us trying to figure out the, the challenge. We would pull the parents in too and say, look, we see this happening. We're telling you, we're being honest. This is what we're seeing. This is this is a bump in the road. What, what Do you have any ideas? Because we're trying to figure this out. And sometimes a parent had a better idea than we did, you know, because they know their kid really well from being home with them, you know? So, you know, I think it's that team approach that, you know, works really well when you see a challenge with um, a student in our classroom. It sounds like you are the same, but parents being advocates goes a long way in a school district yeah. because yeah. at the end of the day, a teacher can say what a teacher wants to say, but when the, it comes from the parent, it sometimes holds more weight. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when this little guy's parents would come in and say to administration, uh-uh, 
or yeah, let's do this. Um, you know, there was more follow through. One of the things that we taught that I've talked about with other families and specifically other dads is an involved dad often can be a huge part of getting some things done because an involved dad is still something of a rarity. The moms it, by and large in, in in their children's education, special education journey, that change of energy when a dad comes in does change things. Am I off base on that? No, or? no. I think Zoom has kind of made that problem a little less prominent. We always have like our CSE meetings um, on Zoom, which we get more parent participation. But you do still see, uh, you know, more moms in the scene than dads. But in this case, um, this little guy's dad was, you know, just number one supporter. He's one uh, B and mom's one A. And um, he did a really great job of, um, echoing mom in a way that was more to the point. He wasn't going to beat around the bush to say, I think maybe we should. He would just say, this is what my guy needs. And this is why I think it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did see a lot of his involvement in it. Um, and I mean, it, it was, it was good to have him involved. He was on all of our email chains. He was on all of our messages. Yeah. Um, he came to all our meetings, whether he was in this little corner office thing where he looked like he was in a tent um, <laughs> during the meeting. So it was, we did see a lot of involvement from him. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I think, you know, ha if, a, if a dad can be, you know, involved in meetings or, you know, decision making, because I think at times moms can be get emotionally charged, right? Not that dads can't, but um, moms get or can be more emotionally attached. And, you know, all the discussions can come from emotions and then dads can 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 sort of detach that a little bit more. I mean, I have my own um, child with sensory processing disorder. My husband always came to um, meetings and he was always that when I started, you know, with a special ed background, I would start getting emotionally charged and my husband could could get right in there and and bring that sort of black and white back to the discussion, you know? So, you know, I think having dads in conversations as much as possible is really, really important. How how does having a, a student with Williams syndrome um, and those unique challenges, how does that affect the way the two of you uh, approach children with other uh, developmental disabilities and, and often, often disabilities that present themselves maybe in a more aggressive or challenging way. Yeah. I mean, he, he taught us a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> um, he taught yeah. us what um, his mom does a presentation for us every, what is it? Spring. We have this week called building bridges where essentially it's building bridges between typical kids and just kids with disabilities. And uh, the, the phrase is William syndrome students have unique challenges and something strengths i don't remember yeah, extra extraordinary gifts unique yeah yeah which he used both of in the classroom and taught us a lot there's a lot of teacher moves that we've learned from him um and from the the two years we worked with him that we will carry on um things like a literal quick post-it checklist get your stuff done by yourself we'll check back with you in five minutes um to to his amazing knowledge and interest in cultures and masks and just letting them bring that into their everyday everyday life um you know mom and dad help with that they take them to you know 
places where there's an African mask museum. And then he comes back and reports to the class and it's like, he's all, he's our own little specialty guy. Um, so we learned a lot, teacher moves and, and just like building our practice as, as best as he can. Yeah. I think the one thing I, I really learned is that engagement um, piece, right? When you connect something that he can hook onto, you know, for example, the bird study, it, he, you know, that you get that engagement piece from him and then, you know, the rest is history. You know, he's he's learning to read and write and all those soft skills through that engagement. So I, I think, you know, that's a big thing that we always talked about is how, what are we going to do to hook, you know, um, our student to, to keep him engaged and keep him um, moving through the process? Do you remember your elementary school years? I do. Um, I elementary school years were they were fun you know it's as I got towards you know high school and those years where it wasn't that great so how I found out that I got diagnosed was I actually had a special resource room teacher who watched a documentary uh, on Williams syndrome and was like oh my god and then called my mom and then my mom thought to the school nurse and then um she watched the documentary and was like so i wasn't diagnosed in, uh, with one syndrome until i was almost 13 which wow. is very rare because usually people with one syndrome get diagnosed anywhere from three to six months or at birth yeah. you know so it was you know a whole life-changing experience and um i got you know i had the fish test and got diagnosed that way wow that's that's amazing yeah, so you you went through elementary school sort of with a just sort of a general developmental learning disability. A learning disability, yeah, great. I can see where that would um, add a challenge to uh, and another layer of challenge to everybody's plate, yours and the. I can't imagine like there were things about Williams syndrome, and I know our time's up, but there were things about Williams syndrome. It's okay. <laughs> we're so specific to Williams syndrome. Yeah, it's I in a minor key. And it would make our student cry. And we were like, uh, what are you crying for? And then Robin's like, minor keys make them upset. And like that just changed our entire perspective about certain things. Like one sound made him cry just because of the sound it was making. So I can only imagine like being in elementary school, being confused because you're not really sure what's what's happening. Yeah. See, the th funny thing is like, I like minor keys, but what? I also like major keys too. Okay. You know? So. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's because so I'm a musician. So, do you, do you remember when you were when you were younger, Brendan? Excuse me, when you were younger, was it this? What did you did you like minor, minor keys when you were say in your you know in your single digit years? Um, do you have any remember memories of that? Sarah McLaughlin would always make. Well, well yeah. yeah, I mean, well, anyone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She would, but I've I've gotten better with it over yeah. the years. You know, I still get emotional listening to her songs sometimes, but I've kind of got a grasp on it now. Yeah. Did you say you were a musician? Yes. Because uh, that's one of the things we didn't talk about our little guy is music is his jam. He will yes. find anything and make it a drum. Yep. So, you know, just to hear that you became a musician is just amazing, you know? Yeah, it's it's been my pretty much my entire life. You know, I started out when I, I used to get physically and violently sick from loud noises because I have hyperacusis, which is sensitive, sensitivity to a lot of loud noises. And when I was three, my parents got me a drum set 
um, which helped me get over somewhat, you know, the sound of loud noises. And I, uh, I never looked back. So I've been playing music for almost 33 years. Now. That's amazing. Well, again, uh, can't thank you both enough. I also just want to thank you for your curiosity, uh, yeah, for, so for your willingness to your willingness to, to, to just be open and to say, I don't know what is, what this is, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna be open to it. Um, and that curiosity is a big part of what helps everybody, um, everybody. Yeah, uh, this is really cool. Yeah. Can't thank the both of you enough for the work that you're doing and for joining today. Yeah. No problem. It was great. It was great to talk to you guys. And, you know, this this boy definitely changed both of our lives teaching and personally as humans. So it was it was a great two years and we'll definitely be following along his journey and, you know, the Williams Syndrome Association. You've been listening to The Starry-Eyed Effect, presented by the Williams Syndrome Association. The show is hosted by Jennifer Keaton, Brendan Lemieux, and Stephanie Karen, and produced by me, Joel Listman. Theme song by Tommy Barbarella and Mariella Elm. Got a question for the show? Email us at podcast at williams-syndrome.org. Video version of the podcast available on YouTube at the Williams Syndrome Association channel. Review us on Apple Podcasts and maybe it will get featured on a future episode. Make sure to like and subscribe to The Starry-Eyed Effect wherever you get your podcast delights. Yeah.